and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Marianne Freiberger. Are you sitting comfortably? And would you like to hear a story? Well, once upon a prime, oops, I meant once upon a time, there was a mathematician called Sarah Hart. In fact, Sarah Hart still exists, and she is professor of mathematics at Birkbeck, University of London, and she is also the first woman to be Gresham Professor of Geometry, one of the oldest mathematical positions in the UK. Sarah has written a brilliant book called Once Upon a Prime about the connections between mathematics and literature. My colleague Rachel Thomas was lucky enough to visit Sarah in her mathematical tower, her office in Birkbeck, to talk about the book. She started by asking when Sarah first noticed the connections between maths and literature. So probably all my life I have made natural links because I've always read voraciously since I was a tiny child and I've always loved patterns since kind of before I knew that that's what mathematics was about. Um, I love patterns, spotting patterns, finding them, playing with shapes. And so the, the patterns in language that are there I think I, you know, I enjoyed from being very young, the rhythms and the patterns. And then as I got older and I became a mathematician, I still always loved reading and I noticed things from time to time, mathematical ideas, whether that's structures or mathematical imagery in writing. Uh, but it wasn't until I became the Gresham Professor of Geometry and my programme of lectures, so I give public lectures as part of that role, and I chose to speak about the links between mathematics and culture in various ways, so music, art, and also literature. And when I spoke about these links with literature, this was the thing that kind of most surprised people and that they hadn't necessarily been aware of before. And so that when, it, when I was approached to sort of think about writing a book, this was top of my list of what to write about, those lovely links. When I was reading the book, I noticed all these resonances, um, partly because I have a mathematics background, but I also write for a living. But there was lots which, once you mentioned it, seemed obvious that I had not noticed. And the thing I thought was beautiful was the first part of the book is about structure. And you had this idea, you looked a lot at patterns in poetry. And you made this nice observation that poetry is very similar to mathematical proof. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about, about the structures you find in poetry. Yeah, so there are, there are links between poetry and mathematics kind of aesthetically to begin with, that a poet and a mathematician have a similar thing when we try and write about what we're doing. Um, it's valued to have economy of expression and having lots of layers of interpretation in, in particular phrases. And poets and mathematicians have both kind of admired each other's work for that reason. Um, so you get uh, Sophia Kovalevskaya, the mathematician, saying, you, it's impossible to be a mathematician without being a poet in your soul. You've got to have that appreciation of beauty and wanting to find out the truth and express the truth in any kind of elegant way. Um, but then, on the, you know, from the poet's side, so Ezra Pound wrote about how mathematics and poetry are very similar to each other. He said, mathematics is, is uh, just like poetry. Poetry is the mathematics of emotions. And when we, in mathematics, we write about triangles and shapes and equations and things. In poetry, it's that we're writing about the mathematics of emotions and, and the human soul. And so that we see these links across. Um, and in terms of you know, a mathematical proof, when you're writing a proof, you precisely are trying to do this. You're trying to express um, probably infinitely many facts, uh, you know, that there are infinitely many prime numbers, or that this 
something is true about right-angled triangles for all right-angled triangles. So you're expressing something that's a universal concept, but you're trying to do it elegantly and in a beautiful way, and there's a, there's a truth inside of it, just like a poem. But as well in poetry, the actual structure of poetry is really mathematical, because although it's hard to define what poetry is, <coughs> I don't know if anyone can give a good definition of poetry, but there's always some sort of constraint or structure or restriction that you impose upon yourself, otherwise it would be prose. So, you know, that might be a rhyme scheme, it might be the, the rhythm, the meter of the poetry, or even, you know, types of Japanese poetry that have a very precise numerical constraint, the haiku with its 17 sounds. Each of these things, whenever you have a structure, then mathematics comes in, because mathematics is how we understand and explore structure and pattern. So yeah, there are these really nice links between poetry and mathematics. And I think um, one of the examples you had looking beyond poetry back to structure was um, the book The Luminaries yeah. and the fact that there's this fascinating structure in the actual way the chapters are, are structured. So perhaps you could tell us what that structure is but also the fact that even if you didn't notice the structure it still impacts on the experience of reading the book. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that it's really important to say. It's, you know, I'm not insisting that everybody must spot every piece of mathematics that's hidden behind any cultural creation. It's the same with music. You can listen to a, you know, a Bach fugue without being able to read music, without recognising, oh, here's, you know, inversion or retrogression or something. You don't need to know that stuff. You just know you're listening to something that's very powerful and beautiful. It's the same with literature. So in the luminaries, um, which is a book, which oh, it's got so much in it, but it's about um, a gold rush town in New Zealand in the 19th century, and there's love and betrayal and opium and uh, gold and all of these things are going on. There are various themes around the interplay between destiny and fate and choice and how much control we have or whether we're, we're guided by forces around us. And there are these two main characters, the luminaries of the title, that are kind of the sun and the moon, and their fate through the book is kind of gradually being constrained and, you know, the, the, the gears are tightening around them. And as a way of expressing this idea or, or of emphasising it, what she does in the book, Eleanor Catton, is uh, the book is divided into 12 chapters or sections. Each one is half the length of the one before. So when you're reading the book the first time round, when you read the book, you don't actually realise what's happening for quite a while because when you do this, so you have you know, one big long first chapter, then half and half and half again, each chapter is getting very much smaller than the last. The first chapter, it means, if you work through the mathematics, is more than half the whole book. So you, re you think, oh, it's just one of those books that doesn't you know, have that. Uh, uh, but then chapter two or section two comes in, and then the next one's quicker and quicker and quicker, and it gives you this feeling of like the pace is increasing, there's impetus, and the events are kind of cascading around these central characters in the very last chapter is just a short conversation between these two characters. So it's a really brilliant way, kind of piece of uh, clever constraint that actually really adds something to the book. And even if you don't know exactly what's happening, you can feel this structure kind of inherently, and it does, it does add to the book. It's a very clever thing, but it ties in as well. It's not for no reason she's done this, because it ties in, there are 12 chapters and there are 12 uh, astrological signs and there are various links between these things and so the choice of that structure is not a random choice I think that's important you know we we don't just do these things for no reason the same in mathematics we don't 
impose rules just randomly. We pick what's best for the situation. And this is what Elena Katana has done, has done in the book. So it works brilliantly. And I think what's really lovely, something I think the kind of maths I noticed in um, plays and in, and in books and in a, my own experience of being in the world is the mathematical metaphor and how well it can capture things in, in um, life. And one which came across, which I came across in your book, which I'd never thought about, you talked about the conic sections mm -hmm. and that words that uh, description, mathematical yes. descriptions <laughs> of those words are then used as ad adjectives of writing. Can you tell us a yeah, bit about so that? The, the conic sections, when you take a cone, and it's usually like a double cone, um, you can slice it. If you slice it horizontally, you get a circle. If you, if you m increase the kind of the slope of the slice, you get ellipses. And then it's at the point where the angle of the line is exactly matching the slope of the cone, you get a parabola. And if you keep going so that you're then slicing through kind of both halves of the cone, you get hyperbolas. So um, ellipse, parabola, hyperbola are the three conic sections. And we can write in all of those styles. You can be elliptical, you can be parabolic in your writing, like if you're speaking in parables, or you can be hyper hyperbolic, you can hyperbole, over-exaggerating. And so it's just always charmed me <laughs> that those are three, the three words we can associate also with literary things and also with mathematical ideas. I actually, this is one of the things which was obvious once you said it, because I obviously know about hyperbolas mathematically, but I'd never, Thought, and I know about hyperbolic surfaces, but I never thought about if you're writing in hyperbolic, you're sort of going off into extremes yeah, and, yeah. and, uh, and, um, and a sort of a quite wild way of writing. Um, but I, what's elliptical writing? What would you describe? Well, so an ellipsis, <laughs> I don't know if it's quite the same root. Um, ellipsis is dot, dot, dot. But if you're being elliptical, I think that means that you're wandering around the subject. <laughs> Bit and, and yeah, and sort of and if parabolic, so parables, yeah. telling a story to. Oh, it's you know, lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I hadn't. That was one of the ones that I that I had not come across before. And uh, the other example, which I think probably lots of people have picked up on, is particularly beautiful. It came from Moby Dick, and um, to one of the characters was trying to. Ex explain I think truth or loyalty, loyalty yeah. and, and about a circle and the circumference in the center what was that yeah so so Moby Dick and in fact all Herman Melville's writing if you if you have a mathematical senses going you see he uses loads and loads of mathematical imagery it's I think just because he really loves mathematics you can see it in his writing and so if he's if he wants to find an image for something or a metaphor it's often a mathematical one because that's kind of just what's in his head um, but this one w with the with the circle idea. So at one point, Captain Ahab, uh, who's the captain of the Pequod, which is the ship in Moby Dick, um, he's wanting to say that his cabin boy is very loyal. He says, you are loyal like the circumference to the center. And of course, that's a really perfect thing. The circumference just always stays loyal exactly the same distance from the center the whole time. So it's just a, a lovely little image. Um, and it's a mathematical one. And I think that's interesting because, you know, Herman Melville has that in his mind. And that's what comes to mind. Uh, there are loads of mathematical ideas in, in Moby Dick. Um, so you might expect, and there is some mathematics, he talks about navigation, and of course you need to do calculations to do navigation. And data is very important both to Ahab, who is trying to track 
this whale Moby Dick and he's poring over all these charts and trying to deduce kind of statistically where Moby Dick is going to be. He does calculations on his ivory leg <laughs> that we lost due to Moby Dick, hence chasing him. But Ishmael as well, the narrator, uh, he is fascinated by information and statistics about whales. And at one point he says, I didn't have anywhere to write down this stuff. So I had it tattooed on my body. Like this is how interested, he, how valuable he thinks the, the, the statistics is. But as well as that, there are lots of discussions around kind of what we can know from mathematics and the power of mathematics. And there's a, there's a fun bit where uh, two of the, the crewmates are talking about this book uh, which would have been a textbook, a school textbook in America that they had in the 19th century called Dabble's Arithmetic. Nathan Dabble was this mathematician who wrote this book. And they were talking in this kind of awed, a bit suspicious way about the things you could do, the powerful things you could do with this book. And one of them says, I've heard devils can be raised with Dabble's Arithmetic with these cabalistic contrivances that they talk about. And that's very interesting that this, this view that is also around, as we know, that kind of mathematics is very powerful but also a little bit mysterious and so that's fascinating that they talk in that way. And as a, so my day-to-day -day job is communicating yeah. mathematics, so I, I thought it was really interesting what came out in your book was I use my communication skills to help mathematicians communicate their work to wider audiences but actually what came out in this book is it's mathematical ideas and concepts that can help anyone communicate and it's just another beautiful part of the language that we have. I mean, how do you find being a mathematician impacts on the way you communicate with people? Yes, I think it is, as you say, it's another resource to draw upon for how we, how we communicate. Mathematicians, everybody uses metaphors. Mathematicians use metaphors themselves, you know, when we're trying to understand and explore new ideas we will compare them to something we know. And that's you know, how metaphors are made. So when we're talking to ourselves and also trying to explain our work to others, we will naturally draw comparisons. And we might do that comparing to you know, the way numbers behave and then say, oh, well, if numbers do this, maybe other kinds of situations, you might have a similar thing. And we even use some of the same words. So you know, when we're talking about algebraic structures, we know what addition is. Everyone knows how to add numbers together. But as mathematicians, we then say, well, what? we'll do something over here and we'll call it addition. It isn't quite, but it's, it's got some of the same properties. So that to me is, you know, it's kind of the same thing we're doing when, when we make metaphors in, in writing. Uh, but yes, mathematics itself can be a source of lovely ideas that authors can draw on. And some of our, you know, the phrases we use in everyday life. I mean, how often do people talk about squaring the circle, you know, uh, which is a lovely metaphor um, for trying to solve something, you know, make an impossible problem uh, be solved. But of course, the, the history of squaring the circle is a fascinating story dating back, you know, thousands of years of, of mathematical ideas. But we just, you know, it's just a, a thing that's come, commonly crops up in our speech that people will say, and, and yeah, that, that's come from mathematics. Um, Can you yeah. explain why squaring the circle is a good metaphor for trying to prove the impossible. Yeah, well, so squaring the circles is an ancient problem of kind of ancient Greek mathematics. Um, and the it's a construction problem, a geometric construction. So we all learnt at school, you know, you can make with a with a straight edge and compasses, you can make equilateral triangles, you can make squares, you can make lots of different shapes. Squaring the circle is if you've got a circle um, of a particular size, can you make, can you construct geometrically a square that has the same area as that circle? 
and you can't. It's <laughs> a long story short. Uh, it was believed one of these things that for, for was thought to be uh, impossible for many, or people tried to do it and couldn't do it for a long, long time. But it wasn't until maybe, gosh, almost 2,000 years after the problem was originally posed that actually it was proved to be impossible. So, you know, it cannot be done um, through, through any means. And that's, that's a different thing from just trying really hard and not yet being able to do it. So those proofs of things being impossible uh, are fascinating kind of mathematical idea. So this, this thing, of course, has been a challenge for many people over hundreds of years, and people have got interested in it. So actually in James Joyce's Ulysses, um, one of the people in that, uh, Bloom, his character, he try, he's trying to solve this. He, although it's already been proved a century earlier to be impossible. Bloom doesn't know that, so he says, oh, maybe there's a, still a way to do it. Um, but yeah, people have tried to do this over the centuries. So it's, it's become emblematic of an impossible thing squaring the circle. It's lovely to think that these mathematical <laughs> ideas sort of seep their way into yeah. the wider cultural kind of understanding. And the other thing that came across really strongly in your book, I think, was so not all of the people who have introduced these mathematical ideas are necessarily mathematicians, but also the fact that everyone, there's an innate appreciation of the structures of the patterns of the metaphors, yeah. that really we all, it was encouraging that to sort of signify that we all have a mathematical appreciation even if we're not mathematically trained. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, everyone will have art that they like. They're, everyone finds beauty in art. Everyone finds beauty in music, maybe different kinds of music. We don't all have to be professional musicians to enjoy listening to music. We don't all have to be professional mathematicians to enjoy mathematical things and concepts, even if it's um, not quite on the level of consciousness. I think that we all have an appreciation of pattern. We all like patterns. And from our earliest childhood, if we think about what, as little children, we like rhythmical repetitions. We like symmetries and those kind of patterns and the little nursery rhymes we learn. You know, they are, they are quite structured things and that there is mathematics behind them. So even just the, the one, two, three, four, five counting that we do as little children and we like doing, that at its root, that's mathematical and it comes out in the things we enjoy. And as, as we grow older, of course, we perhaps start to enjoy more sophisticated patterns and structures, and that's still mathematical. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's an innate part of all of us. And, you know, I don't want to get too metaphysical, but I think it's because we, we are part of the universe and the universe has structure and pattern. And that's why mathematics is useful for science. <laughs> and that's why it just comes out in, in, our, in our cultural creations, in our art and our music, and yeah, in our literature. It's just there in all of us, I think. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. That was Sarah Hart talking to my colleague Rachel Thomas about her book Once Upon a Prime. You can read more about some of the ideas she discussed at plus.maths.org. In particular, if you search for conic sections or squaring the circle. The music from this podcast is from Yusa and the track is called Plankton. You can find their music at soundcloud.com slash EUSA. Thanks for listening and bye for now.